Amen. So we're coming to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And here in the letter of 2 Corinthians, there's a really distinct shift in tone. Um, it's so stark that the letter was really encouraging up to now. And for this last half, Paul really comes to a more, um, a more corrective tone. And it's led some people to speculate. Um, maybe there's different authors to these two parts of the letter because they're so stark and distinct. But I think it's much more simple for us to consider that Paul is so often, he's on the road, he's often persecuted, and a long letter like this where you don't have um, type editing software, and you really have to get it right the first time you write it, um, it would make sense that sometimes he would maybe take a pause in writing the letter, some new things happen, he comes back to writing the letter with some new information, maybe he's heard some news, he's in a different frame of mind, so uh, I think people make too much of changes in tone in Paul's epistles, because it's letters, and this is real life. He's not sitting down to write a book in a cozy office. This is just him corresponding with people um, as it goes along. But anyways, the big issue going on here that he's going to be addressing is this issue of basically church politics. So what has happened is Paul, as Paul has left the Corinthians on their own, there's different people now rising up and vying for leadership. They want to get uh, the power, the glory in the local church. And in order to do so, they want to try to pull the people away from Paul and his leadership. So not only are these um, other people that want authority are kind of building themselves up and trying to make their case about why they should be followed. They're also trying to tear down Paul to the church and try to kind of basically, like you would imagine a politician doing, try to just like give them the work, give Paul the worst press campaign they can think of. Just tell them why Paul's not on their side. Paul doesn't care about them. And so Paul in this chapter and in the next, he's going to be sort of making a defense and response to these people. But in some subtle ways, he doesn't want to play their games fully, but he knows he needs to give some accounting for himself. <coughs> So that, that's a bit of the uh, scenario we're looking at when we look at this passage. Um, we'll, we'll spend probably the most of our time talking about the first six verses here. Um, I want to talk about some of the spiritual warfare stuff, um, and then we'll probably fly through the rest. So if we feel like we're not going at an equal pace, don't worry. It's quite all right. Okay, take a look at verse 1. Now I, Paul, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am humble among you in person, but bold toward you when absent, I beg you that when I'm present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we're living according to the flesh. So right here, Paul is, he's using these opponents' words that we're going to hear they say later on in verse 10. So these opponents, one of the things they're trying to diss Paul for is saying that, when he's in person with you, he's all nice and a kind guy. But when he's away and writing, all of a sudden he's like super mean and you shouldn't really trust him. So he's almost using their own words and saying, you guys say I'm the one who's humble among you in person, but bold when I'm away from you. I'm bold when absent. Paul says, no, I'm appealing to you not out of an angry spirit. I don't write to you um, to just censure and reprove you. But I do appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. These two qualities that we see eminently in Christ. Paul's saying, this is my heart, to, to treat you gently. And he says, um, even if you think I'm being bold in my letters, 
I don't want to have to be bold when I come back and visit. So Paul's planning on going back to visit the Corinthian church. And he's saying, I don't want to have to come with like a hard hand and authority because we know there was lots of issues and problems in this church that had largely been corrected, but it seemed like there was probably a few more that needed to be dealt with. And Paul says, I am going to need to come back and challenge these people, these other leaders trying to call Paul's authority into question. He says, I'm going to need to challenge these people who think that we're living according to the flesh. So this is the first of one of the arguments we see these people making against Paul is they're saying he lives according to the flesh. Um, We saw earlier in the letter, one of the ways they thought he was being fleshly was that he was being sort of double minded. He said to the church, hey, I really love you. I'm with you. But then they say he left you guys and he started going ministering other places. So maybe he's just in this for himself. Maybe he's just in this for his own glory and his own renown and not your guys' good. So he's saying, we're going to challenge you guys that think that we're doing this from just fleshly motives um, for our own glory. And I think just as an aside, the ideas here of appealing in meekness and gentleness, and um, we can consider that these are really two qualities that we all do want to be cultivating in our lives and in our interactions. And we might differentiate them like this. Meekness, you could say, um, meekness is primarily an internal quality. And I like to think of meekness as um, an unprovocability. That is, it's a softness of spirit that you're not easily provoked. You know, I often, I use the illustration of, uh, say, like a, a good family dog. Like the best family dogs are the ones where a little kid can go and pull its tail and pull its ears, and the dog's not going to growl or snarl or bite. It's not easily provoked. And so a meek spirit in us is when someone um, says something mean to us, we're able to, in a sense, absorb the blow, absorb it without having to lash out in return. So it's a, it's a self, self-security, it's a, um, a self-confidence, just who we are in Christ, our identity, that we don't need to return evil for evil. We don't need to rise up and defend our own name with anger. So it's a, it's a slowness to anger. It's this sort of internal quality of meekness. And then gentleness, we could think of as more the external actions. If we are going to receive um, issues towards us meekly, we want to respond then gently. And so responding with a gentle touch instead of a firm punch. Um, Or as uh, Ephesians 4 would say, speaking the truth in a loving way. So meekness and gentleness are two things we really want. And so now he's going to talk a little bit about if his ministry is not fleshly and motivated by the flesh, here's what he is all about. Verse 3. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. So Paul Paul does, does a nice little shift here from talking about his appeal to them to saying, Here's what my ministry is all about. I'm not about fighting according to the way humans fight. I'm not going to stoop to the level of this sort of politics where we diss one another and build up our case and just try to make everyone think ill of each other. He says, I'm in this for the spiritual gain. That's what I care about among you guys, not fighting my way for authority, but I am doing spiritual battle on a much more significant level. He says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
They're powerful through God. He's going to talk about what these spiritual weapons do. He doesn't um, strictly mention what all the weapons are, but we see throughout the rest of his letters that the two primary weapons that we use in the Christian faith are the word of God and prayer. In Ephesians 6, it talks about the sword of the spirit. That is the spiritual sword that we use to chop down these high arguments is the word of God, or we might think the truth of God. The second weapon being prayer. The fact that we have recourse to God, to God's power, God's strength, God's spirit to come to our defense. Uh, we can also see in the church, there are, um, God gives the keys of the kingdom to the church. And so one, another spiritual weapon is this weapon of uh, church discipline, which is not um, only, we always think the extreme side, but that's everything from Gently correcting someone, say, hey, this way you're living is not in accordance with what God calls us to. It's a, it's a calling one another to a way of life that is marked by uh, Christ-likeness. So spiritual weapons. And these weapons are used for the demolition of strongholds. He says, we demolish arguments and every proud thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. So this is interesting. He's saying, I'm not concerned about fighting people. He says, we are fighting on an ideological level. We're fighting arguments and philosophies and reasonings and worldviews. And that's the spot in which um, spiritual warfare happens. And uh, we're often, um, we often don't like talking about this idea of spiritual warfare. It's been co-opted uh, by charismatics to have all these sorts of weird things that, you know, we fight demons this way, or we like, uh, we, we use the right words in order to gain spiritual power. That's not really what spiritual warfare is. What spiritual warfare is, is it's, it's fighting the lies that permeate our mindsets and permeate our culture. And we fight it with the truth of God. And it's the truth of God, that sword of the spirit that is able then to chop down these arguments and high things that get raised up against the knowledge of God. And I would maybe summarize these ideas of these high things raised up against God, these arguments, these proud things, is I like to think of it in terms of isms. Okay, so we can have all these different philosophies, ideologies in the world, and there's a sense in which it when it becomes an ism, that's when it starts to take on a whole worldview-defining um, frame. And this isn't a strict way that an ism always works, but just for purposes of illustration, um, consider some of these with me. I think this will make a bit more sense. So take um, materialism. Okay, so this is saying the material world, which we believe in and is good, and we need to believe that this world has materials that we can use, Materialism raises that idea up to make it a high, all-encompassing thing to say then that all there is in the world is the material. All we should believe exists is the material. And when it becomes materialism, that's all of a sudden something that's raised up to compete with God. Because it's an alternate worldview saying, no, there is no God because there's only material. And the God you say you believe in isn't material. Does that make sense? When material becomes materialism, it's raising itself up to compete with the way God sees the world. Or uh, secularism. Okay, so the idea of the secular is just saying that 
in this area, um, a particular religious views don't really matter or make a difference, right? Um, and there is a sense in which everything does have uh, religious value to it. But uh, if, if I'm going to buy a, a cup of coffee from a store, it doesn't really matter to me whether the person serving it is a Christian or atheist or Buddhist. Um, it's a fairly neutral act. Just can you make a good cup of coffee? But secularism raises this idea of a religiously neutral sphere and says everything has to be secular. You can't have any religious value or worldview in anything, not in your education, not in your personal lives, not in your conversations. And at that point, the idea of the secular gets raised up to compete with the knowledge of God and the life God would have us live. It is, is that making sense? How isms raise up ideas? Yes? I'm seeing some nods. Okay, there we go. Um, any, any comments or questions so far? We're going to do a few more of these. Anything to add? Okay, so consider also... Um, yeah, I think, I, think, I think these are interesting to think of. Um, individualism, right? So that's taking the truth that we are individuals who make individual, moral, responsible choices... And it raises up to say that all that matters is the individual. The individual is the highest court of appeal, the highest authority, and any view that cares about society or as a collective is something that we need to cast aside. And that raises it up to say that it almost makes us as individual people the highest authority against the authority of God that we're under. We're under God in this world. Um, Okay, maybe some more interesting ones. Uh, more, so think of um, the idea of uh, libertarianism. Libertarianism takes the idea that liberty, which is good, and we value, and we do want to live in freedom, but if you elevate that to the highest value, all of a sudden what you have is, again, now you have an idea that's competing with God, saying, no one else can impinge on my freedom to live how I want to live. And so when it becomes this level of ism competing against God, all of a sudden, um, for instance, there's no more sexual ethic that is in alignment with God's word. Freedom, liberty, a good thing, when it gets raised into an ultimate thing, all of a sudden competes with God. Does that make sense? Um, you can take something like socialism. Okay, so it takes a truth that we are a society, right? And we ought to care for one another. But when it becomes ultimate, and says everything that matters is just the communal good, that all of a sudden becomes a competing worldview to how God would have us live. Uh, capitalism takes the truth that there are truths of how capital markets work and how wealth is amassed that are true and right, but when it becomes an ultimate worldview that everything someone believes is captured by that, all of a sudden uh, the creation and amassing of wealth becomes more important than caring for each other, and it can lead to exploitation. And I'm not saying any of these things are bad things just because they have an ism. I'm just saying um, as, like a, as a thought experiment, if you took these things to the highest order of your worldview, right? So I'm not saying you can't believe in any of these things. I'm saying that when they become your ultimate life philosophy, which we actually can see in this world, they ultimately fail because they compete with God's worldview as the ultimate life philosophy. Uh, skepticism. That takes the truth that we ought to not believe everything we hear. We should be skeptical about some claims, 
But it says then, ultimately, we should be skeptical about everything. We can't know any truth. We can't know whether there's a God. We can't know um, if anything is trustworthy. It makes this a skeptical idea the highest. Um, rationalism, the truth that reason is good, but if reason becomes ultimate, then all of a sudden man's understanding is elevated above God. And rationalism in this country back in the 1700s undermined the Christian faith and led to Unitarianism because the doctrine of the Trinity is not rationally understood ultimately. It's a mystery received by faith. And so because early in this country, reason got elevated to such a high extent, the doctrine of the Trinity got jettisoned and Unitarianism took over the universities and led on a really dangerous slide because it got made ultimate. Um, humanism takes the truth that we should care about human flourishing and human happiness and says, no, human happiness is now the highest good. And that's, again, going to compete with what God says. And so what do we do with all of these? Okay, we can see apart from God, everyone is looking for a life philosophy that makes sense of ultimate reality. This is the way the world truly works and how we should live. But Paul says we fight these with the truth of God's word and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Okay, and so this is our task as Christians. As we encounter the grains of truth in these various isms, and most of them do have some grain of truth in them, the question then is how do we make them come into alignment with the ways of Christ and make them obey Christ? Right? So we take the truth of rationalism and we say, yes, we should be rational and reasonable, but that has to be underneath what Christ has revealed in his truth. And so we hold to the mysteries of Christ's nature as being both God and man at the same time, the mysteries of the Trinity. Um, we take the, the truth of the material world, but we bring materialism to obey Christ, understanding that, yes, we cultivate, we build, and we love to create— but we have to do it acknowledging that there's a greater spiritual reality. There's souls to care for, not just bodies. And so I'd encourage each one of you, if you're thinking about just what's your field of work, okay? What's your vocation? How do you spend your days? What is the truth that the world is saying is the reason you're doing those and uh, the philosophy behind it? And think, how can I make my daily work better align with how Christ would have us live? What would it look like to bring this into obedience to Christ. And you, it might be hard to think of something um, in what you're doing, but even the idea of, if you see someone say who is building, building something, maybe houses, to say, well, am I doing this just for um, myself and greed or to obey Christ, I'm helping people and I want to serve in this. And so whatever the case may be, whenever you're hearing pundits or uh, speakers, TED Talks, whatever, think what is the philosophy they're promoting? What's maybe the kernel of truth in it? But then what would it look like to make that come into obedience to Christ? What would environmentalism look like if, it, if Christ was being obeyed in it? How would we steward the world Christ has given us under his principles, not what the world says is the ultimate reality? Okay, is, is that concept making sense to you guys? Anyone want any more explanation or comments, questions? We're agreeing. Nobody's saying anything, but we're agreeing with you. <laughs> it's certainly. Good to know, good to know. There are some isms that we would 
Christians they are just completely contrary to Christianity also right like atheism or um, Satanism I guess hmm yeah, I don't know. I wonder if I could work to try to find a grain in tru- of truth. Um, I'm sure there are some, yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. And, like, this whole idea, just because something has an ism doesn't mean it functions as an ideology or philosophy. I just more fa- thought that this example was a, a helpful way of thinking. How might we identify ideas that are raised up against Christ? Usually we'll find them in isms in our day. Though not every ism, and it doesn't mean every ism is bad. So this is, this is mostly an illustration um, about how these can be used. So don't, don't be scared of using isms. Yeah, Michelle. So I feel like our, our world today just is characterized by a lot of those isms. And so does that kind of then reflect back to say that a lot of contemporary Christians perhaps have lost their ability to kind of regulate that with Christ at the center? I mean, is that what we're kind of saying is reflected in our culture right now? Because I feel like a lot of those isms speak to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, I don't know, maybe this is always an issue, you know, but it seems especially apparent. I think there's especially a lot of polarizing, even among Christian circles, you know? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think one technique as Christians that is helpful to use is um, too often, I think, in uh, more fundamentalistic circles, it's a total rejection of each of these ways of thinking. Instead of, I think our usual best technique is to try to identify with what is the common value that we hold with someone that holds these isms, but then what does that look like in view of Christ? So um, I, I like listening to a lot of podcasts, and a lot of them are by people that would be very humanistic. You know, the ultimate good is the flourishing of humanity. And if I was talking to someone like that, we'd have a lot in common. And I could say, no, I totally agree with you that like we should care about these issues and we should um, want to see people flourish across the globe in this way. But also, I believe that that's not our highest end and glorifying God is the best way um, to enjoy him in this life. And so I think if you can identify common ground with the philosophy but then show what it looks like in a Christian lens. I think that's our kind of point of contact. I don't know, is, is that really what you're asking? I'm not sure. Somewhat. That was a very well-defined question. I was just trying to wrap my head around this. Yeah. I think kind of to follow up with that, um, some of these isms, and as, you know, while we are uh, Christians and kind of doing a, a Christism, they do align but where like the humanism would be the highest mm-hmm. that you know we're, we're not there yet right you know? so yeah I think that's it it's identifying where's the point of divergence right so we say like we, we agree up till here, but no, I can no longer follow you this way, right? So like with like say something like libertarianism, it's like I can no longer follow you into ultimate liberty in our sexual ethics, right? It's like we say we, we have to diverge at that point because God's word actually has constraints on our liberty in some spot. <laughs> yeah, but the more we can think about it, I think it's helpful. Oh, did you have something, Marie? Just it's ultimately like balance. I mean, it's when you swing too far one way, like you're saying, like Christian is finding the balance in God's word. Like, mm-hmm. There's truth in all of it, but it's just taken it out of context. Right. And that's the importance of cultivating discernment, right? Like Hebrews, um, at the end of Hebrews 5 says that the, the discerning, wise, mature Christian is one who's had his senses trained by constant practice to discern good and evil. 
So as we encounter all these things coming to us all the time, we need to know God's word well enough to be able to evaluate them. And as you say, like even watch movies with your children, can you learn to identify what are the isms being promoted? What is the saying is the ultimate good? What is this saying is the beautiful way of life and evaluating it in God's word? It's a really important thing to train our minds in. Yeah, Mark. Well, I think sometimes we're overcomplicated and I never wore one of those what would Jesus do bracelets. But really, ultimately, if we know scripture, no matter what comes in our path, a situation, a circumstance, a decision, the, the litmus should be if Jesus was standing right here, right now, would I do this? Mm -hmm. Would I act this way? Would I make this investment? Would I say this? Because ultimately, he is standing right here. Yeah, and that's really the cultivation of what we call the fear of God. It would be, how would I be living if God, I really believed that God was right here with me. Um, I would I would have a way of living that acknowledged it. It would be, all my thoughts and actions would be influenced by God's presence. I think that's good. Okay, let's move on because uh, we got to fly through the rest of this stuff. Okay, he says, verse six, we're ready to punish any disobedience when your obedience is complete. So again, he's alluding back to, hey, when we come again to, to Corinth, we expect most of you guys to have followed our instructions, but we will deal with those that are not acknowledging our authority and what um, God's word calls us when we come. Look at what is obvious, verse 7. If anyone's confident that he belongs to Christ, let him remind himself as this, that just as he belongs to Christ, so do we. Okay, so here Paul's going to be really interacting with these um, other leaders. He says, you guys are trying to build yourselves up saying we're the ones that belong to Christ. He's like, come on, you know that we belong to Christ too. Like, that's a pretty silly argument. And he says, if we boast a little too much about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not tearing you down, I will not be put to shame. And so we'll see later, Paul's, one of his main arguments here is that the reason he has authority over the church at Corinth is because he was the one that founded the church. He's the one that brought them the gospel and word of God initially and trained them up in the faith. And not to mention that he's doing this as a very specifically commissioned ambassador of Christ, one who had special authority from Jesus in order to bring forth the gospel. And he says, you know, I will tell you, I'm freely, I'll freely admit that I do have this authority in Christ. But remember, this is authority only to build you up, not to tear you down which is an interesting contrast with the tearing down of all these false worldviews and isms. He says, that's what we use God's truth to tear down, but we use everything God has given us in our teaching and leading to build you up. And right, again, that's a sign of good church leaders, ones that want to see God's people built up in love, in the truth, not torn down. If we do this, um, I will not be put to shame. Uh, verse 9, I don't want to seem as though I'm trying to terrify you with my letters, for it said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. So again, this was one of those accusations that these other leaders were bringing. They said, um, his letters, he's all bold and fiery, but then when he comes to us, he's weak and he's not even that good of a public speaker. Wouldn't you rather follow after me, who am eloquent, and I know what I'm talking about, and I, I present so much better than this Paul guy? Paul says, you guys are saying these things, and yes, I don't want to terrify you unnecessarily by writing harshly to you, 
But let us such a person consider this, that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will also be in our actions when we're present. So he's saying, I'm not inflating these promises like, say, a politician might do in the not deliver. He says, yes, I have said some hard things to you in my letter, but when I come, we are going to follow through. We are going to deal with those people that we tried to publicly correct in our letters. I'm not just grandstanding. I'm not just making a show of it. We are going to have to deal with uh, these people dissenting against God's ways. Verse 12, uh, we, we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend ourselves. Uh, this is Paul being a little, um, some, some would say almost like a bit sarcastic or ironic here. He might be saying it like, you know, we're not going to compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. Like, I'm not going to play these games of comparison. Um, follow me because I'm the best leader. Don't follow this guy because he's not good. Paul doesn't want to get involved in these sort of petty politics. He says, when they're measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. And again, I think there's a lesson for us here of um, just how we deal with comparison and envy. Because we want to be respected. We want to be thought well of by each other, even here in this room. We want people to think that we're pretty great people. And if we try to use just comparing ourselves to others in order to do that, which is really at the heart of envy, it's just, it's a fool's errand because you can always find someone worse than you in some category in order to try to inflate your own sense of ego. You can always find someone who's better than you in some way or at something. And if our ultimate standard of comparison is each other, that's just a foolish way to live. And that's also a way to live that is weak because then our sense of self-worth and our self-confidence is at the whims of our environment. Um, You know, I'm going to one high school or college where I'm getting good grades. I move on to a different program where everyone has been successful academically. And now I'm in the lower end of the pack. And, oh, now I don't know who I am anymore. I'm not the smart one anymore. You know, whatever the case may be. Or you're playing sports. And then all of a sudden you get up, bumped up to the select team. And everyone's as good as you. And this identity you've created is now collapsing. And so we don't want to be people who compare ourselves with each other. That's uh, the heart of pride because what comparison is saying, the problem with the heart of comparison is that it's not just the desire to be good at something, but it's the desire to be just better than others. So I don't really care how good I am at soccer as long as I'm the best one on the team, right? Whereas if I was, say, the worst on the team, but I was happy that I was improving and playing well, that's a much more humble approach. So this is something we can really watch in our own hearts is just see how am I, when I enter a room or a party, am I sizing myself up against other people saying, hmm, I think I'm more spiritual than that person. I probably make more than that person or the opposite. Oh, I'm probably way worse off than that person. I do not have the skills of that person. That's really, um, it's not the way we ought to be thinking. Um, God's made us who we are, and what we'll see at the end here is he says, we don't want to just commend and boast in ourselves, but boast in the Lord and what he's done for us and who we are in him. That's where our ultimate security comes from. However, we will not boast beyond measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God assigned to us, which reaches even to you. So Paul's saying, I'm going to narrow in 
on the thing I'm really going to promote to you guys is that you are a sphere of authority that God gave to us. I'm not going to try to say all these great things about myself, but just tell you the truth that we came to you with the gospel of Christ. He says, we're not overextending ourselves as if we had not reached you. We're, he's saying, we're, we're not trying to take credit for things that we don't deserve. It's not like, Paul's saying, if it was the case that someone else had come and planted the church at Corinth, and we had just jumped on in and said, now we're the leaders, listen to us, that would be overextending his argument. But he's saying, that's not the case. We came to you with the gospel of Christ. It reached to you. And therefore, because we planted the church, this is an area of responsibility that God has given to us. And so he said, I'm going to boast about that, that God actually, through my ministry, let the gospel come to you so that you could hear about Jesus and follow him. We're not boasting beyond measures about other people's labors, but on the contrary, we have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel to regions beyond you without boasting about what has already been done in someone else's area of ministry. So he's saying, my great plan is that as we do care for you as a church with our apostolic authority, as you get settled in the faith and become mature, eventually we will move on. Once you are stable enough, faithful enough, you guys will actually be able to help us go to regions beyond you to bring the gospel further. At this point, Corinth was the furthest uh, west that the gospel had gone. This was, this was the edge of Paul's ministry at this point. And Paul, he wants to go on to Rome. He wants to go on to Spain. But it's almost as if he's waiting for the Corinthian church to be stable enough that he doesn't have to, in a sense, baby them. That they actually would have stable, godly leaders so that he could move on. Um, yeah, any, any comments or questions on anything we've just covered in this section? It's kind of an, an interesting glimpse into the, the life of the Apostle Paul. What sort of things he was dealing with, how he had to kind of uh, deal with these churches. And he does say later on that, uh, the daily anxiety of all his churches is the greatest burden he bears. He's so anxious for all these people um, to be strong in the faith. He says in Galatians, I, um, I'm in anguish like the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Uh, that's his best metaphor for the pain he feels in his heart for his churches. The pain of childbirth because he just wants to see Christ birth in these churches so badly. See them come to true Christian maturity. And then he concludes verse 17. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay, let's all get out of the self-promotion game. Let's get out of the um, pumping up our own tires game and just boast in what the Lord has done. Because Christ has already accomplished everything for us that we could never do from ourselves. Um, if anyone was in small group uh, looking at Ephesians this week, Ephesians 1 says that we've been seated in heavenly places in Christ. We've been given every spiritual blessing. So why would we need to try to promote ourselves and, and compare ourselves with other people when we have everything we could ever have and need in Christ as far as ultimate love, ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate hope? Um, just such great riches. Last verse here, for it's not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. Uh, the, the verse 17 was a quote actually from Jeremiah 9.22. Um, you know, if you remember the passage that says, let not the mighty man boast in his might or the rich man boast in his riches. 
Uh, but let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. The one that knows God. So the one who glories or who boasts should boast and rejoice in the Lord. And this last verse here reminds us of um, Proverbs 27, 2. Um, which says, like, let another praise you and not your own mouth. Right? So we don't want to be people that are just praising ourselves, patting ourselves on the back. But all we really care about is that God approves of us. To live a life that pleases God is the deepest desire of every Christian heart. Just says, whatever this means for me, I just want, in a sense, to bring a smile to God's face. I just want to live in a way that pleases him and honors him because he's been so good to me and so kind. And I think if we have this mindset and we're able to learn to live this way, that all I care about is God's approval, what that does is it really makes us impervious to our environment. So when the project you're working on at, um, at your job fails or goes south and maybe your manager needs to reprimand you, that doesn't shake you to the core. If the failure doesn't, um, in a sense, end you and wrap you in shame, because as long as you know that the Lord approves you, that you've done your work to honor him with integrity, or if someone comes and praises you that you've done the best job or someone's telling you, oh, you're just the best parent I've seen. I've just seen you and your kids. Wow, you're just amazing. That doesn't uh, puff you up to something like, ah, yes, I am such a good parent. I know. But you recognize, well, I, I don't need to receive praise because if the Lord approves me, I can just be stable and settled in that. That's the kind of people we want to be. People impervious to our environment because we're secure in the Lord's ultimate approval for us in Christ, right? In Christ, we have God's approval forever. And then we want to live in accordance with that. So anyways, uh, that's all I got. We got um, a couple minutes for questions or comments if anyone has any. Or anything to add? Awesome. Why don't uh, we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we recognize that of ourselves, in our flesh, we could never gain your smile or gain your approval because we do recognize that deep in the heart of humanity is a desire for praise and a desire for self-promotion. And we so frequently just compare ourselves with others and allow that to either lift us up or cast us down. But Lord, that's why we thank you for Jesus who paid for all our sins and who through his death and resurrection, brings us an unbroken flow of your love and that we can be adopted to the family of God. And would that security, Lord, just that recognition of your love for your children so stabilize and secure our hearts that we would not be easily shaken by what happens in our environment, that we wouldn't be brought low by our failures or lifted up in our successes, but that we would constantly look to you acknowledge your presence around us and seek to live as people who honor and please God. We pray these things and do the same. Amen.